The Appendix and Podcast, Episode 27, At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. Welcome to the Appendix and Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we explore the inspirations behind Gary Gygax, a member of a long-forgotten ancient race that created Dungeons and Dragons. In the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, Gygax included a list of books and stories to be inspirational reading to those who would master the dungeons of fantasy. Every episode of Appendix N will feature a different story or collection of stories. Together with my co-host Jeff Wickstrom and my guests, we lay bare the dusty secrets of these forgotten tomes and speculate how they may have influenced the first edition of the world's most popular role-playing game. If you are reading along with us and would like to send us your comments, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for a list of some upcoming stories. Uh, Just to let you know before we begin, one of my guests, Christopher Carlson, wasn't able to join us when we initially started recording. You'll hear me introduce him uh, about midway through the show. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. And joining me tonight is, as always, is my co-host Jeff Wickstrom. Aloha. And I am happy to be here. <laughs> yes, you are. Although uh, aloha is the is the wrong sort of climate for this for this chilling tale of Arctic adventure. Well, you know, we're we're all warm, uh, warmed by the by the good cheer of camaraderie. So you got to you got to fight the uh, fight the chill. All right, and uh, and uh, uh, joining us in our camaraderie is uh, my special guest Peter Foxhoven. Hi, thanks for having me again, guys. Welcome back, Peter. Is this always is this, a pleasure? Is this your first non Conan episode that you've been on? Yes, it is. I'm I'm uh, dipping my foot into the pool of. a of different sorts of stories for a change. Ooh. I know. I I know comparatively l- little about uh, Lovecraft and his writing compared to you know uh, Robert E. Howard. So who is is this your first time reading uh, at the Mountains of Madness? No, it's not. Um, this is this was kind of one of those things that I went through like in late high school, early college when I was like on a big Lovecraft kick. But I haven't mm. read it. This is probably only the second time I've read it. And and Jeff. Um, this is, well, this was the second, maybe third time I've read it. It's, um, not something that I've come back to over and over again, the way I have some other Lovecraft stories. Mm, yeah, this is, this is my second, uh, read through as well, or, or at least my second, uh, listening to the, to the, uh, audio book. Um, and wow. So yes, I should, I should introduce, uh, our tale tonight, our, our chilling tale of, Terror and Dread at the Mountains of Madness is H.P. Lovecraft's only full-length novel that was published during his lifetime. Although I think we mentioned that the case of Charles Dexter Ward was longer, but was published after his his death. Uh, mm-hmm. At the Mountains of Madness was written uh, February or March of 1931 and was serialized in Astounding Stories 
from February to April of 1936, so not not published until five years later. Um, and I believe I believe it was rejected by Weird Tales for being too too long. That sounds plausible. It is not a short story. It is not a short story. It's not in a hurry. I think is is one way to look at that. No, this this is definitely a a story of of slowly building terror, and um, it's I think it is it is a a masterpiece. It it definitely shows the the breadth of Lovecraft's uh, knowledge of of not just science but uh, art and philosophy and literature. He he references Poe here, of course, one of his mm-hmm. favorite authors. Uh, the the title itself, at least according to Wikipedia, is is a Lord Dunsany uh, reference. Um, Do we need to talk about the give a give a plot summary of At the Mountains of Madness? With some of these stories, and I feel like At the Mountains of Madness is a fine example, along with like the Dunwich Horror and um, you know, some upcoming ones like The Hobbit. I feel like anybody who has made the decision to listen to this podcast is surely at least loosely familiar with the outline of At the Mountains of Madness. Well, uh, it, it, it is part of the format of this show, so we can, we can go over the plot in, in, in brief, um, mm-hmm. especially because I, I think, I think it, it leads to a point that, that I want to make, make about what makes this story so fascinating, at, at, at least to me. So I'm, I'm going to summarize mm-hmm. real quick Thousands of years from now, aliens may be going over uh, the ruins of our civilization, trying to uh, find all of the meaning that they can. And the only thing they're able to get out of the entire internet is this recording. So they, I'm sure they would appreciate some context. Okay, aliens and listeners to the Appendix and podcast. Uh, At the Mountains of Madness is the story of Dr. William Dyer and his expedition to the, to the uh, Antarctic uh, continent. Uh, he's he's he and a and a bunch of other scientists set out from uh, Miskatonic University. There's a guy named uh, Pabodi who has invented a uh, very good drill, uh, not a drill that could drill to the center of of the Earth, but still a very good drill nonetheless. Uh, there's a guy named Danforth. There's a guy named Lake, and there's a whole bunch of other guys who may or may not get names, but they're not really important. Um, Basically, they they get to Antarctica. They're they're drilling around a bunch, and this this lake guy finds something that uh, makes him want to go off to the northwest and do a, do, a, do a sort of sub expedition. I can't remember exactly what they find. I think it, it's basically it's it's alien footprints in stone. Is that is that correct, Jeff Peter? Fossils and alien footprints. Yeah. Yes. So uh, Lake goes off on on his his own, and. Uh, they find some fossilized aliens, but they don't know that, that they're aliens, but we know they're aliens because it's a Lovecraft story. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they find some fossilized aliens, and we, we hear through uh, radio reports all about the things that uh, Lake is uh, describing about these fossilized aliens that he still thinks are just dead plant fossils or something. And then, of course, uh, Lake and his entire camp are, are horribly murdered, which we don't find out about until our, our main uh, characters uh, catch up with the lake camp to investigate. They they just come to the camp and everyone's everyone's dead, and um, there's 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 signs that uh, basically the the plant alien uh, 
things woke up and murdered everybody and then went through all, all their stuff because they were you know they're they're intelligent beings and and, and you know that's 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 where, where where the horror comes from right these are these are intelligent think, thinking creatures they they woke up to find one of their own being dissected by these weird hairless ape things that they've never seen before and they they fought back and stole a bunch of of uh, supplies and tried to make it back to their to their own city which is uh at the mountains of madness, right? It's it's this weird cyclopean city uh, that that we we first see from an, from an airplane, and then Dyer and his and his friends they they go there, and they explore for a while. Uh, they find some carvings that give it a really actually very detailed uh, description of the history of these beings, uh, and then they find find a shoggoth and they run away, <laughs> and that is the end of the story. Um, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing very much, uh, especially about the Shoggoth part, but it's, it's, that's the part you really have to kind of read to, to, to understand the full scope of, of the horror and the, and the gravity of that, of that moment. Uh, but we will, we will go over all of these things with it, with a fine tooth comb. I, I, I think, I hope. Right, guys? Yeah, absolutely. Peter, you've been, you've been very quiet. What did, what did you think of this tale? Okay, this uh, to me, I have the same opinion I do of Herbert West Reanimator, which is that it's just too long for what it is. Like, I understand the idea of slowly building to this cosmic terror that he's working towards, but I just don't feel that it really needed a hundred pages to do that. I, th- like, I think that's a, that's a major criticism criticism we've had of a lot of Lovecraft stuff. You know, Charles Dexter Ward had had parts where it just went on too long and 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 he he could have gotten to the point sooner right and this is where i think we see like the one of the biggest differences between the 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 two appendix and authors that you know now i've talked to you guys about is that robert e howard on the other hand if anything is too brief a lot of mm-hmm. the time he'll he'll encapsulate a thousand years of history into one really short paragraph like flashback scene when conan gets bumped on the head or like Huff's magic, you know, like Black Lotus. Whereas this one, I mean, I feel like the second section of this, or not the second section, but um, one of them earlier when they're when they're talking about the elder things. I mean, the amount of time they go on just describing their appearance is is really nice. I mean, you get a good picture of them, but it just seems absurdly long. Yeah, I the I think that the uh, story you can divide it up into about three acts. There there are twelve chapters, but I think there's about three acts. You have the portion that describes the um, the expedition going south, uh, getting to Antarctica, setting up, doing their initial explorations. Lake deciding he wants to take this other trip, going off and doing that, and then him radioing back all of these excited notes about all of these things that he's found. And uh, then the windstorm that uh, seems to knock out their communications, such that they go looking for them. And that's, that's like Act 1, right? And then Act 2 is uh, our narrator, whose name escapes me at the uh, moment. Dyer. Uh, Dyer. Dyer uh, goes to investigate uh, what happened. Uh, he... Um, spends a fair amount of time talking about the uh, the trip 
uh, over there about what the state of the ruins of the camp and the way all of the guys were, you know, ripped apart, one body missing, yada, yada, yada. And then he um, says that, you know, that that's the, 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 you know, and then the official story is that at that point we, we turned around and went home. And now I'm going to tell you the, the, the other part, the missing 16 hours of the, of the timeline. And that's act three, which is, which is the actual story, right? There's the first two thirds of it. I mean, more than half, I think, is is build up to uh, contextualize the actual parts when the weird fiction happens, right? The the portion where they're actually exploring the city mm-hmm. and mysteriously interpreting these murals uh, very very well, yes, and easily, yes, um, yeah. I don't I don't know that. I don't. I don't know that that the first two two thirds are 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 wasted. I mean, I. I mean, you know, I. I. I also have to contend with people who who claim that uh, the Lord of the Rings is is a, is an endless description of people walking through uh, mountains, and and I have to say I don't know what what they're they're talking about. Um, I. I. I really have to admire how Lovecraft just lay, lays on thick the the scientific details, the the descriptions of like especially in in the beginning the the descriptions of all the e- equipment that that mm-hmm. they're that they're bringing just just makes it seem like this is a really serious expedition and 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 you can you can see from the from the equipment descriptions how this might be an inspiration for a for a uh, role-playing game um i i believe the the call of cthulhu scenario um beyond the mountains of madness where you actually play the stark weather more expedition uh, start starts out with you as the player characters deciding on what equipment you're going to bring to survive in and and antarctica yeah the first section of that campaign is uh is taking inventory yeah going through looking at all of the uh all of the stuff that you have in crates mm-hmm and um, I, I know from again Wikipedia that Lovecraft was was very interested in Ant- Antarctica. It was at the time one of one of the few places on Earth that, that had not yet been thoroughly e- explored and mapped, and he could sort of go there and invent whatever he he wanted. Uh, I think I think the famous exp- expedition by by is it Bird? Um, Shackleton. Shackleton, someone. There, there was a very famous expedition to to the South Pole that that happened the year before this. This was written in 1930. Um, this was written in in 1931, and of course not published until until 36. But that wasn't Lovecraft's fault. Um, and he was also apparently uh, Lovecraft was apparently afraid of the cold. Uh, he was he was very sensitive to to cold. I mean he was. I mean, he was very sensitive to lots of things. Uh, colored people, women, New York. <laughs> so, some of which uh, kind of leaks through in interesting ways in this story, the, the subtext of it. But, I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, and, and we know from, from John Carpenter's The Thing that, that you know, the, the North Pole, the South Pole, it's, it's, it's very isolated, it's, it's, it's very, very desolate. It's, it's the perfect setting for a, for a horror story, right? Because you're, you're in yeah, this hospital. You know, uh, 
There's a joint French-Italian research station that is located in Antarctica, not very far from the putative location of Lake's um, secondary camp, mm-hmm. which you, you can browse photos of this has been operational since uh, 2005. Um, and it's uh, apparently like one of the most isolated places on Earth. Mm-hmm. They use it as, uh, in part, to study the effects of extreme isolation for deep space missions because it, you may as well be on the moon. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's that's a place I would really not not want want to go. I'd like to visit there, but only for about half an hour. Uh, if on a on a on a tangent, um, Lovecraft mentions uh, McMurdo Sound, uh, and and I was just reading today uh, Justice League. Dark Side War Batman, um, which is which is a comic book in which uh, Batman uh, gains the powers of a of a god. Uh, don't don't ask why. And Batman uh, teleports some criminals to Antarctica, and he mentions McMurdo Sound, which I just thought was an interesting co- coincidence that I happened to read both that comic book and At the Mountains of Madness in in the same day. Well, Antarctica doesn't have that many uh, familiar continental like geographic features to make reference to, I think. And um, we, 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 have a, we have a surprise appearance from another special guest. Welcome to the show, Christopher Carlson. Welcome, Chris. Hello. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Do you, do you like to be, to be called Chris? Yes, Chris works fine. Awesome. This is Chris's first time on the show, so uh, why don't you tell the audience... Uh, who are you? What do you like to do? And what do you what do you like to read? All right. Well, uh, well, I'm, I'm Chris uh, Carlson, like you said. Uh, I like to read Lovecraft <laughs> uh, specifically, and uh, really into the Warhammer 40k novels. Nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a uh, lot of those, and they're very thick. Yes, there is. I can look at my bookshelf right now. I got two shelves full of 40k <laughs> stuff. Oh my goodness! Uh, and a uh, whole lot of unpainted miniatures. But anyway, <laughs> so you're so you're you're a big Lovecraft fan. Yes, yes. I uh, I own the uh, complete works of H.P. Lovecraft. His uh. Just the stuff that he did by himself, not the uh, uh, ghost writing and the uh, collaborations. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I own that, and uh, I've read or listened through everything he's done. <laughs> All right, so tonight we're talking about at the mountains of madness, and uh, my my guest and I we've we, we've already sort of uh, summarized the the story and laid out the main characters. Uh, Chris, what's what's your opinion of At the Mountains of Madness? Oh, specifically, what do you think about the pacing of it? Uh, well, there's the pa- a lot of buildup before you get to the uh, to the alien city. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you want real Lovecraftian horror, you can skip the first half, basically. Uh, but if the first half is great for uh, from a world building sense and from a uh, uh, slow burn to kind of get you to, you know, into the mindset. By the time you get mm-hmm. to the alien city, you're you know these people. 
you know what they they know their ex, you know their expertise, you know their qualifications, and you know what to expect from them. You 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 do get a little bit more time with these protagonists than you do with with the typical Lovecraft. Yeah, like like enough to enough to feel worried for them when when they're in danger. Definitely. <laughs> Lovecraft is not really known for his characterization. And I feel like the story is not really an exception to that. But there is a little bit of color to these academics, all of whom seem to have read the Necronomicon for fun. <laughs> like yeah. many Lovecraft uh, protagonists. Yeah, yeah, so it's easier to, easy to imagine them as a group of like uh, you know science fiction fans, basically. Well, I, I I think I made the point way back when we were talking about about the Dunwich Horror that it's 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 interesting how the Necronomicon is just just is just laying open in the in the middle of Miskatonic University Library. Anyone can come come and read it. It's kept under lock and key. You have to have some kind of uh, permission to uh, to do it. These guys are all faculty and graduate students, so of course they just show their uh, show their IDs. I suppose that, that makes sense. <laughs> but I, I, I also do love um, how how Lovecraft has has just woven his his own mythology in with real world uh, uh, mythology. Like he's, I, I think there's there's one point early on where he's he's listing like a a a, a bunch of things, a a bunch of references, and 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 he he just drops uh, Cthulhu cult randomly into 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 this list of of other real world uh, myths that that. You know, mm-hmm. we're, you know, so, um, I mean, he's, he's integrated his, 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 his mythology into the world. If, if Cthulhu had actually existed, then ancient cultures would have, would have written, um, would, would have, would have oral, oral traditions about him and, and, and the mad Arab Abdul Alhazred would have really written about him and yeah, all this, all this stuff, so. Well, not to get too far ahead at the end, I mean, that becomes very self-referential for H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, you have Danforth, that it, where he, there are points where he's flat out saying titles of Lovecraft stories. Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I think, I think um, prior to this, uh, un, Unknown Kadath was, was the one where, where he was name-dropping his own stuff left and, left and right, and, and here he's, he's doing it, it again. Um, yeah, of course. Unknown Kadath was unpublished in his lifetime, so this was this could be him use, reusing those ideas, uh, you know, with and no here, here with no he, regret. He even he even references Kadath, which which we were to understand in the Dream Quest of of Unknown Kadath was a place in the Dreamlands, but here it's a place in in the real world. Well, maybe maybe it's in the real world. This is actually something that I think is kind of interesting about the story because it gets. It's so incidental to everything else, um, but as they are flying towards the city, they see the city. They have an image. They see an image of the city as it existed long ago, where instead of the toppled towers and the the truncated cones, there are these beautiful spires mm-hmm. um, that, of course, were worn away thousands and thousands of years ago. They have this vision of the city as it existed. And then when they're leaving, they get this view of these even even higher, even worse, even more evil uh, mountains, which he explicitly links to Kadath and Ling, um, wow. which are just over kind of to the side of the Elder Thing city. And they, the, 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 those things are just present. They don't 
play into the story of the city or the story of Danforth and uh, Denby? Darby? Uh, uh, Dyer. 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 Yep. Dyer. Yep. Danforth and Dyer. Um, Danforth and Dyer and, and the one or two other nameless scientists that he's with at the at the time. Um well, and to jump like way ahead with Appendix Center, just touch on it, maybe with, with the thing with the, you know, the mountains plateau of Lang kind of just sort of being off to the side or whatever. Um, maybe that's kind of similar to like in Moorcock's work where Elric essentially travels into the, like the elemental plane of water just by going so deep into normal water that it like passes through a barrier maybe it exists in that same sort of way maybe there's a mystical barrier that you're so far south that there's something about being in that region that allows you to actually travel quasi-dimensionally this is the the edge of the world this is off the map right and so there's something about where it intersects with like the dreamlands or something like that which actually would be kind of a cool idea i assume that there's an aurora like uh phenomenon in the Antarctic. I don't know if there is, but I would assume there would be. Mm-hmm. That would be kind of a cool bridge for it. The Aurora Australis. Not yeah. to be confused with the Aurora Borealis, mm-hmm. I think. And yeah, that's he, he Lovecraft also makes makes references to these to these Asian paintings by by Nicholas Rorick, who's a who's a um, Russian Russian painter and I and I looked looked them up and, and they're they're very alien looking. Yeah, he mentions them a bunch oh, of times. Yeah. Too. those are the, the the paintings with the the cubes on mountains and stuff. I've seen them. Mm-hmm. 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 And he 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 also and and speaking of cubes, I think I think he mentions like like the giant's causeway in 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 Ireland, which I I also looked up, and that's a weird looking looking thing. Like it it doesn't look like a natural formation. It basically looks like like it's made out of out of Mario blocks or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But you know we live we li- we're fortunate enough to live in the age of the internet when um, mm-hmm. all these Rorick paintings are just a Google image search away. Yeah. Well, somehow Lovecraft knew about them, right? Well, he had a he had a, you know a good library, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think he uh, was able to go through his uncle's library. Yeah, but he couldn't necessarily depend on his readers being able to do Google image search or having access to. Yeah, you know, whatever big art book he was looking at. Well, I think I think I think the nerds of yesteryear were a lot smarter and well read <laughs> than 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 we are. I mean, like even if you go, I think back they to knew like, a lot less about Star Wars. I yeah. think a lot less about Star Trek, and I bet that I could win a Simpsons trivia contest with any of them. I mean, even even if you go back to like Marvel comics of the of the sixties and seventies, there's a lot more hard science in those in those comics. But there are still, I feel like back then, their nerd culture as we see it was still really confined to academia. And mm-hmm. so it makes sense that you're going to have all of these guys that are relatively, by our standards, well-read because the only people that have any kind of exposure to the sort of ideas that we're talking about would right. have been academics or someone with an academic background. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft was a, was a smart, smart guy is, is the point that I'm... Absolutely. Oh, ab- yeah. I feel <laughs> I feel smarter for reading him, but I mean that what here's here's what what I think is 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 the real genius of of the structure of this story is that Lovecraft doesn't doesn't just 
build up to his to his climax like he like he usually does but he 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 very craftily circles around it like a like a like a buzzard slowly spiraling down on its on its prey because we because we start the story at 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 the end we we start with Dyer giving basically a press release so we 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 know he made it back safely right and and then he he goes all the way back to to the beginning and gives us gives us a description of the expedition expedition skipping over two of the of the more crucial parts and then then he he goes back back again and tells us what really happened at lakes lakes camp and then mm-hmm. just as as he's he's about to tell us about the the expedition to the to the actual city of the of the elder things he 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 gives us one final final warning and he 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 brings up the thing that Danforth screamed right like we've we 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 keep hearing that that Danforth screamed something all through throughout this story right so so he he tells us that which is which is chronologically at the at the end end of of the story and then and then launches into this whole whole description of the of of what happened in the in the ruined city and and then we finally get to hear what what Danforth saw and and what what he's screamed so so it's 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 the it's the it's the sliding around this this one little point and 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 going backwards and forwards and in 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 the narrative and, and until we zero in in on this which which I think makes this story so unique in in my my mind well that aspect might be the best characterization in the whole piece because the premise is that uh Dyer's having trouble actually talking about what happened right like he Mm -hmm. knows he needs to to dissuade people but there's just something holding him back and so it does kind of wobble back and forth like where you can see like him kind of fighting it so while I earlier complained that it did I felt like this story is too long for what it is mm-hmm. the way that it's written is itself characterization and that's actually quite brilliant right and it does read like i mean the guy's a geologist right it kind of reads yeah. like a geologist may have written it like this isn't somebody <laughs> that like has a necessarily a literature background but is used to having these very dry matter of fact reports and that's what we get i mean they're the minutia of description of what the thing looked like what gear that they had with them this reads exactly like you would expect for someone with that kind of background. He's hiding behind his scientific uh, training from the horror. Right, exactly, yeah. That way he has something rational to hold on to. Yeah, and, and, but the nature of the horror changes over the course of the story in a way that I think is interesting because at, at least I, I barely noticed that it was happening. But initially, the what's the monster in At the Mountains of Madness? It's the Elder Things. Right, these horrible, very close—they're very well described things that came to life and murdered a bunch of dudes. Mm-hmm. Right, and then they're going to the the lost city of the elder things, and uh, the elder things are the thing that we're focused on as as the the enemy, as the 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 gotcha, the monster at the end of the story. And then there's this fairly abrupt pivot away from that onto the Shoggoths. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
in that moment, um, Dyer is like, you know, when you come down to it, the elder things were just, they were guys, you know, they were, they were trapped in this weird situation. They Mm -hmm. made, they did the best they could with this in the situation that they were in. If I were in their shoes, I would have done a lot of the same things, yada, yada, yada. There were, he felt, he feels a, a kinship with them that is of course wholly absent when you're talking about the the shoggoths there's this this extra layer to it the you know, the, the the floor drops away uh, from the elder things and you, and you have the shoggoths beneath mm-hmm. which i think yeah. is is not something that i really remembered from when i read the story in high school and i thought it was really effective yeah i i i think we sh- we should spend some time talking about about the shoggoths cuz they they are one of lovecraft's uh most well-known uh monsters uh, the the cover of the volume of Astounding Tales, where the, where this story uh, appears, features a artist's depiction of of Abe Shoggoth, kind of, sort of, and and what looks like two Ghostbusters running away from 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 the from from from, 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 from okay. I mean they've 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 got backpacks and and they've they've got flashlights, which yeah, mm-hmm. makes makes me think of. I, and and the and the Shoggoth looks like 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 a green slime monster, which which is is what makes makes me me think Ghostbusters rather than Lovecraft. But as we've stated before, Ghostbusters the movie was really just a Lovecraft story with a with a comedic twist on it. So, but, but anyways, yeah. although that brings me around to something else about the Shoggoth, which is that in that picture, the Shoggoth is a big green monster, mm-hmm. and the Shoggoth is not a green monster. The Shoggoth is a black monster. The uh, the Shoggoth is consistently described as being black in color, and uh, there's a black slime associated with it. Well, as... Proto Shoggoth is this horrible white thing, but the Shoggoth is uh, is black, not green. Mm-hmm. Well, as as we've mentioned uh, on on the Conan podcast, the the people illustrating the covers of these things uh, aren't always the best. Well, stop me if you've heard this before. Okay, you have this society with two castes. And there's the the case that are basically guys, you know, scientists doing reasonable things. Mm-hmm. And then underneath them, you have the case that does the the labor. And ideally, they're docile and obedient, but sometimes they get smart and uppity, and you have to knock them around. And also, they're black. Well, and also, they're <laughs> giant, shape-changing beings from beyond space and time. Yeah, it, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I think it's 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 mentioned that that the the Shoggoths can basically assume the shape of whatever they want and can grow organs and change colors, so they don't they don't have to be black. Hey, it's it must be great to be a Shoggoth. They're black for Lovecraft, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyways, so the the uh, Shoggoths, I think it's it's been mentioned that uh, Lovecraft. Might have gotten the name from the from the Sagoths from Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, at at the Earth's core. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think they're 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 also partially inspired by this uh, Poe story. Um, what's what's the name? Gordon Pym or something? The narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. Arthur Gordon yeah. Pym. What, who, the narrative as of we Arthur all Gordon know, Pym has... Arthur Gordon Pym is the inventor of the Pym particles. Uh, it was Henry Pym. Uh, Arthur Gordon Pym is a guy who encounters giant albino penguins that shout tekalili ah. uh, on his trip to the um, either Arctic or Antarctic. Well, there there are giant uh, albino penguins in this s- 
story. Uh, which, yeah, which... it's 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 basically uh, Lovecraft just took that element from Arthur Gordon Pym and inserted it into the story. Which I I think like if if I were in that city, I would find a giant albino penguin with with milky white eyes terrifying. If if, if I just just happened to cross it. You know, if if you get to that point where you're seeing the penguins, you have already gotten so far in um, that you know you're gonna be you're just gonna be like, oh, penguins, yeah, okay, I know what penguins are, I recognize that. That's a bird. I know what that is. And I feel like that's exactly what happened, right? Even though they, I mean, because they comment on the size, but they're like, but aside from their size, like they're penguins, and it's clear that they are kind of have like weak eyes because they've been mm-hmm. underground for so long. So once again, I think you're in the same place. He's seen weird enough stuff that giant penguin is just normal enough that he's like, oh, okay, that uh, that's not as bad. I don't like. I, I found the point. penguins creepy. Because I mean, they're 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 out of place, right? It's it's this weird alien city, and there's these penguins walking around. But they're not normal penguins; they're they're giant al- albino penguins. And I, I I think I think we 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 forget when we're when we're running Dungeons and Dragons how how weird and interesting normal animals can be. I mean, most of you know a a lot of Tolkien monsters were giant spiders or you know, wolves, but scarier, you know? Uh, and Dungeons and Dragons is, is full of dire animals, megafauna, uh, cryptids. So like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount the penguins as, as, as being, uh, comical or, or, or just a, just a, just a throwaway. Oh, but, but in just in context, they seem so mundane compared to their surroundings. It kind of reminds me of when I first saw the movie Spirited Away, the Miyazaki uh, animated movie. Mm-hmm. There's all of this crazy imagery in that movie. And then about three quarters of the way through, the heroine goes to this swamp. And in the swamp, she sees a, uh, like a, an ambulatory lamppost, mm-hmm. right? a, a lamppost that's walking around on legs. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at that and thinking, oh, that's something that I could see in like a Disney cartoon. A walking lamppost. That could be like in, Be- in Disney's Beauty and the Beast or in Fantasia. That's something that I can recognize. That's only a that's only a walking lamppost. Mm-hmm. I feel reassured. I, I I thought of Miyazaki at almost the same time that that you you did. I, I you know I think I think seeing seeing penguins in an in an alien landscape is is a very Mi- Miyazaki moment. Yeah. Oh, and taken on their own, yeah, they would be terrifying. But the, uh, at that point, uh, Dyer and Danforth have much bigger things to worry about. Mm-hmm. So, Shoggoths, what do we what do we think think of think of the Shoggoths? <sighs> Shoggoths are amazing because you could do anything with a Shoggoth. Uh, yeah. Import Shoggoths into Dungeons and Dragons, and. Uh, you have a monster that could just be just, you could justify pretty much any kind of stat line for it. I, I think in right. Pathfinder they are they are CR twenty. Yeah. Yeah, they they are. Because <laughs> I mean, when when they in, encounter them in in this story, I mean the the closest metaphor we get is like it's like an oncoming subway train. They're they're in this cyclopean tunnel, and this thing is filling the tunnel and rushing towards them. And it, it's full of eyes and weird weird lights, and it's a giant black blob that is, is just rushing towards them, crushing everything in its path. 
Mm-hmm. So I don't. The, uh... He love. Lovecraft, at least in in this story, doesn't really deal with 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 the shape changing aspect. I mean, he he could have had the Shoggoth turn into a a human or a penguin or or an, an elder thing and like mess with the scientists, but he doesn't do that. It's it just it just rushes forward and tries to crush them. Right. Unless well, it and... was the penguin. <laughs> <laughs> it was a scout. Could Although be. he gets eaten by a Shoggoth, so that doesn't make sense. Maybe maybe the whole city is the Shoggoth. They're all Shoggoths all the way down. All, all the buildings are just Shoggoths in, in disguise. The whole of the Elder Thing technology was based on Shoggoths, so they made their city out of Shoggoths. I know some Call of Cthulhu uh, scenarios have microscopic Shoggoths, too. Well, it, it's because they didn't learn how to build their city on rock and roll. <laughs> well, the Shoggoths are the, the protoplasmic originator of like all life on Earth. Right, the um, elder things the landed. Point. They made shoggoths, and like some waste product got loose and evolved into all living things. There's there's some weird confusion of terms in this tale between like, between elder things and old ones and and great old old ones. I mean, he, I think I think Lovecraft implies that that the that the great old ones like Cthulhu and whatnot made life on Earth. But then he starts calling the elder things the the old ones, and it it gets it gets weird. I think Lovecraft had fun with the idea that he was citing unreliable narrators. <laughs> Could be. Although I've always taken it as the elder things were experimenting with life to create the perfect being, which was Shoggoth and humans and birds and animals. Those were just the failed experiments that got out, so they didn't destroy fast enough to get away from them. Mm-hmm. Or else they didn't see them as a as a threat. Yeah, I, mean, right, I, yeah. I think I think it's some better. some oh. of the some of the hieroglyphics show the show the elder things like eating and 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 torturing you know early early humans. One of them does have a bunch of them laughing at humans. Yeah. Um, and this 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 also features this this tale also also features the the idea of a of an underground pre pre prehistoric race and a and a polar shift much. Like the 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 moon a, pool, yes, the the a a merit story the the moon, moon pool. So there's 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 lots of uh, blah. I'm stuttering a lot today. There's there's lots of 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 precedents for for this kind of i idea in science fiction, and and Lovecraft just just took it and polished it and made it shine. Made it shine with a horrible pale witch light. Mm, absolutely. So the the elder thing. So in in the elder things city, we learn a lot about the history of prehistoric Earth. Does, does, does anyone want to want to lay it out for us? It's suspicious how much we learn. Right from cartouches, no less. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of paints this depiction. If if you've seen one cartouche, you've seen them all because they were apparently <laughs> able to read them very easily. And they just were able to intuit the meaning of all of these murals and bas reliefs and stuff. So, so what what we get is essentially the the elder things were this space faring race. Uh, they could they could fly through space, kind of kind of like like the Migo, and and they actually encounter the Migo in this story. But but apparently their their means of 
flying through space is is only migratory in in purpose like they they can't just do it for leisure they can they can fly to a planet and s- s- blah. they can they can fly to a planet and they can they can settle there but they can't leave so so easily right mm-hmm. and they yeah. and they settle down on on earth and they sort of lose their their ability to fly through space but they create life but then they forget how to create life um and then i think cthulhu comes and they're really scared of cthulhu and uh the migo show up at one point and they have wars with the migo which would be a great setting for a camp campaign i think they fight the flying polyps at one point mm-hmm. i thought the migo were the flying polyps no no, no, uh, no they're the fungus they fight the uh, the like the spawn of Cthulhu. Yes, the they Migo. they mentioned the star spawn of 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 Cthulhu, uh, and, and and we're we're told in the whisper of of in in darkness that that the Migo could wipe out the whole human race without without a second thought, and yet in the and yet the the elder things went uh, toe to toe with them, um, which which may actually explain why the Migo are so secretive in in our time because they don't they don't want another war like they had with the with the elder things. They don't know that the elder things are not around anymore. Could no. could be, could be, or it it could be that the, that the Migo are just not as invincible as they claim. I think I kind of expressed this when we were talking about Whisper in Darkness. Maybe they just claim that they could wipe out the human race. They're very vulnerable to dogs somehow. <laughs> yeah. Right. Maybe it's a superior numbers game, and the amigo that are on Earth are in isolated settlements, so that they lack the uh, numbers sufficient to make good those claims. And perhaps that is because of the war with the elder things. Maybe they're maybe this planet used to be swarming with the little guys, you know. And then I mean, we're, war with we're the talking things. about billions of years ago. Like you'd you'd think the amigo would have enough time to scout the planet and figure out the elder things are gone. Well, that presumes that the Migo have things like radar, and maybe they don't. Maybe they have things that work just orthogonally to that. They have very little ability I'm, I'm to sense they, these things. I'm saying they have time. Like they could, they could fly all around the planet. Well, see, now you're making the assumption that they experience time the same way that we do. There's this whole thing uh, oh, about. Me. There's this whole thing inside the uh, the portion where they're looking at the reliefs and murals where they deduce that the elder things blamed the fact that they did not effortlessly defeat the Migo on the Migo being extra-dimensional demons. I don't think they use the word demon, but um, the, the elder things were creatures of matter in a way that the Migo and the Starspawn supposedly were not. Do we do we get that in the Whisperer in in Darkness? Because the Migos seem pretty corporeal. They, in they seem pretty they, corporeal in Whisperer in Darkness. Yeah, which again I think it. it points to the unreliability of these different narrators. Something that um, Dyer comes back to over and over again when he's talking about Al Hazred and the Necronomicon and Shoguths is that Al Hazred claimed that Shoguths were purely creatures of the Dreamlands that there were no shoguts in the real world, that they could only be accessed by doing a lot of drugs and hallucinating them, basically. Um, and he was apparently totally wrong about that. <laughs> so maybe he's wrong about other things. Well, and I can give you guys the, the strictly D&D reason, why, for, like the first dead reason why perhaps the Migo are pretty uh, prone to leave the, the Elder Ones 
alone, right? So considering Elder Ones have Shuggoth slaves when they're messing with the Migo, right? According to deities and demigods, first like the first edition that still had the Cthulhu mythos, you're talking about a Migo, which is a which is a uh, five hit dice creature versus a Shuggoth, which is a twenty hit dice creature. So I mean, when you have like a little army of of twenty hit dice servant beings, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel I feel like it doesn't take a lot of encounters with that before you're just w- willing to let that go. Yeah, and the Migo yeah, have a lot more. <laughs> they have they have a whole other part of the galaxy they can deal with. They're just uh, they live on Pluto, and that's just not even where they're from. They're from way further away. So this is just like a basically a uh, out outpost of an outpost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is it is a strange strange world that uh, that Lovecraft uh, paints paints for us and uh it's missing some major things from his chronology he, he at, at no point did the elder things interact with the great race of yith which really makes no sense except when you consider that lovecraft had not yet written shadow out of time aren't, written- aren't the yithians from the future no they're from the past and okay. uh, they're going to go to the future um, when they reach the point in their history where their race would go extinct. They're going to project themselves into the future and take over the spider monsters that are going to inherit the Earth from humanity. Of course. Like you do. Okay. I, hey, I, they're the great race. I, I, I think we're going to get to that story. So I'm looking forward to it. And, and now, you've, now you've spoiled it for me. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, is... Is there any other topic that, that someone wants to bring up regarding at the mountains of madness? Something, something we we haven't covered in in depth. We've we've talked about about the scientists, about the hostile in, environments, the horror, the the shoggoths, the history of the of the elder things. Nothing springs to mind. I feel like when I read this when I was in high school, I really did not care for it all that much because of the pacing because so little happens in the first half to two thirds of it. Mm-hmm. And then before you get to the good part, right, which is them exploring the city and right. you getting the, the, the ancient history and stuff and um, reading it now as I guess I want to say as an adult, um, I have a lot more respect for how well Lovecraft sets the mood and builds the, the tone, you know, he. I don't think that the exploration of the alien city would be nearly as interesting if it didn't come at the uh, after all of this very rigorous sounding and scientific verisimilitude providing um, detail mm-hmm. and travelogue emphasizing how far away it was and how isolated. Mm-hmm. I think. I think if if he had just done the the horror at Lakes Camp. This this would be would be a a, a fairly average but well done horror story, right? Because that, yeah. that, that's really well done. Because because we 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 hear the reports that they've uncovered these these things and they're going to examine them and then silence, right? And then and we we can just infer what what happened and then Dyer gets to to the camp and we can still only infer what happened, but we yeah, basically th- know what happened. Yeah, and that's your that's like a that's a very standard Lovecraft story right there, mm-hmm. and that's that's that is also maybe not coincidentally the official story of the expedition that Dyer um, 
propagates once and, they get back to civilization. And if, if if he had just done that and and stopped there, it it would have been, a, it would have been a, enough. A very well done classic horror story, but he goes he goes one step further and takes it into Lovecraft territory. Yeah, it's uh, you know you have just as Dyer and Danforth keep pressing forward through the alien city for no good reason. Um, you know, even at the time saying stuff to the, to each other, like we should probably turn around and go back. And Dyer saying, I can't explain why we kept going forward. Um, for science. It, 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 they, 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 this happens like three, uh, two or three times in chapters nine and 10, um, that they do that. But, you know, just like that, Lovecraft continues to, uh, to press forward to the, um, to the dark heart of the worst thing imaginable. Um, you know these these rebellious black monsters. It's think, very I effective, think, and I, I I think there's there's the the image we we get of the of the Shoggoth just just coming through through the fog. I think there's there is a passage where where he mentions that that the fog briefly parts, and both scientists shine their their flashlights on it at at, at the same time, and 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 they get like one brief image. Of the Shoggoth coming coming towards him, I'm I'm would would be surprised if if someone hasn't made a painting of that of that moment. Mm-hmm. And it's full of these great little details, like um, the relief that they find that is so much cruder than all of the other murals, and it's all the way it's all the way in. It's the last one that they find. It's so much cruder than all the other murals. It seems like somebody um, scratched out murals and then in the place where they had been carved new ones that were just parodies of the previous things and that's that's supposed to be i think i think the shoggoths taking taking over trying to trying to imitate yeah or just straight up making fun of the elder things and actually i really liked that because we at least from egyptian history we know like through passing of dynasties one of the first things people would do was deface most of the statues of the dynasty previous yeah right like yeah. chop off noses and mm-hmm. like destroy cartouches and stuff and that's cool considering they and are. so on yeah exactly yeah. and so like using since they're using cartouches anyway it's a cool kind of throwback to that that these shuggets are doing the exact same thing yeah, and then you have this description of uh, what the the very interior of it is, this vast interior cavern um, that, uh, upon examination, actually used to be a bunch of caverns, but then somebody knocked down all the interior walls to make room for the giant monster, um, which immediately put me in the mind of the Dunwich Horror and the Whateley House. Since oh, that's, yeah, uh, yeah. Something that Wilbur did, mm-hmm. right, to make yeah. a make a space for his brother, mm-hmm. as his brother grew. All right, uh, Christopher, this is this is your first time on 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 the show, so I'll I'll give you the final word. Do you do you have any final words about at the mountains of madness? Well, uh, well, it's it's a it's a great story, <laughs> um, and I've always. I've always loved the the uh, the idea that there's more to this story, like mm-hmm. the Shagath or not the Shagath, the uh, Elder Thing city uh, that they built a new one underwater and that might still be there, or yeah. the other Elder Things were going to it and they were 
attacked by Shoggoths, so maybe the Shoggoths have taken over down there, and all the elder things are extinct. Or and uh, also the flying, the scene where they fly away, and uh, Danforth, I think, mm-hmm. uh, looks back, which you're not supposed to do <laughs> ever. <laughs> no. uh, but he does, and he he sees more. You know, horrors that just pale in what they've already seen, and already it's almost too much for Dyer to 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 stomach. Mm-hmm. He sees Ling or Kadath, right? Yeah, or or yeah, or both. You know, maybe he gazes into the dreamlands. Maybe the wherever the dreamlands and Earth intersect in some other extra dimensional plane. That that's where they intersect. Mm-hmm. There, not properly that's, either of them. Yeah, right. Well, because I because I. Uh, Ghouls can travel uh, between both Greenlands and the real world. Yeah, there are physical Physical. ways there, and there are um, dreaming ways there. So, yeah, it's just this idea that he'd seen so much, and he, he, I'd say that he lays out more in this story than he has in any other. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly breadth of time, but just in detail. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a detailed almost diagram you can make of the elder things practically yeah i know they're uh, they're, they're one of the lovecraft most well site. well described love lovecraft monsters yeah. yeah the guy describing them is you know the biologist who has discovered them right right, right. True. he's explicitly a phd uh paleo uh, paleobiologist right so obviously he's excited about that um yeah. that actually that actually uh, reminds me of one thing that i don't like about the story is several times there are references to how the elder things, uh, how their civilization degenerated over time, mm-hmm. and they became more and more decadent, and they lost technology and so forth. And one of the things that they apparently lost was the ability to make distinct footprints, which I don't understand. Because he talks about how the later footprints are more primitive-seeming. I don't know how you make a primitive footprint. Yeah, I, I don't know. They they, they also so, lost their ability to fly through space. So yeah. well, there's there's, there's they, so much in the story that's so visual and easy to easy to imagine. But the the increasing primitivism, as expressed in the fossil record, mm-hmm. I, I, as opposed to as expressed architecturally, which I can understand, mm-hmm. or artistically. But um, well, I, I I suppose I'll I'll trot out my one one gripe with the story is that is, is that. Is it is it just me or is Tekeli Lee not really scary? <laughs> well, I, uh, from what I understand, it it's scary because of what it implies. Because the Shagoths uh, copy, they only they copy the Elder Things. So Tekeli or whatever is like an Elder Thing call. It's like in the Predator, where they. Uh, yeah, okay. The movie The Predator. They they copy the. Uh, it's like a it's like a hunting call. In in that context, I can I can see it, but I think it's something yeah, that it's really only square. works. <laughs> I think it's something that really only works if you read the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym as a yeah, child and then I, read this as an adult. Yeah, I, think. I mean, it's, it's, it's 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 like the Daleks. Like I don't really understand why the Daleks are scary. <laughs> Because we're not we're not looking at it we're not in that cultural moment right you know when Edgar Allan Poe's giant albino penguins that shouted Tekalili were like the height of American horror I, I I can't even tell what that's supposed to like it's supposed to be onomatopoeia like it's supposed to sound like something but it just 
to, to me it sounds Maybe like it's... like 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 a like a like the cry of a of a Pokemon on on. A... <laughs> it's, it's like ukulele. Ukulele, uh, I choose you. Ukulele, but it, but with a T. So you know, take a lele. Well, I mean, like original original Game Boy Pokemon, like all the Pokemon had like a like a little sound bite that they, they, that you could activate. It it, it sounds like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So what we're saying is that Shoggoths are Pokemon, boys and girls. Yep. Uh, whereas uh, Cthulhu and the uh, Deep Ones are Digimon. Yes, Cthulhu and the Deep Ones actually did show up on an, an episode of Digimon. Go watch it. Oh, cool. <laughs> Cthulhu has uh, and Lovecraft have shown up everywhere. Yes, yes, they have. All right, um, Chris. Um, I usually I usually give give my guests if if they have like a a blog or a Twitter or something that they want to let people know about. I usually give them a chance to shout out about that. If you if you have something like that, do you? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I. Uh... I blog about my uh, fifth edition game on, uh, well, I think it's uh, dungeonsandgreattulu.wordpress.com. I can send you the link for sure. But uh, uh, yeah, I, we, I, the show uh, notes. yeah, I, I, uh, I've updated re- pretty regularly for the last six months or so. But um, uh, the last couple, uh, last month or so, I've been kind of dropping off. But I'm getting right back into uh, updating about twice a week. Uh, and also blogging about my buddy Jake's game that I play in, so kind of describing what I do, what my players do, and things like that. All right, we'll put that in the show notes. Everyone, make sure to visit Christopher's blog and say hi. Peter, where on the internet can people find you? Uh, I am more uh, updating cromcountthedead.com. Uh, so what went up today was a discussion of how to reclassify magic weapons as opposed to just saying a plus one so that there's a more thematic element to it. So we usually, I usually try to get something up on Thursdays. So. And what's new over at jeffwick.com? Oh, well, you know, I don't know when this is going to go up, you know, if it's 2017, 2018. Uh, so, you know, go over there, see, be surprised. Awesome. Jeffwick.com. Go to jeffwick.com. Go to jeffwick.com today. Listeners, this wraps up another episode of the Appendix N Podcast. If you have any thoughts or comments, questions or concerns about anything said on this program, please send an email to thetomeshow at gmail.com. Put Appendix N in the subject line so that it gets forwarded to me. If you've read a book by any of the Appendix N authors that we did not cover on the show and would like to submit a short review or commentary, we would welcome your input. Our next episode will be a discussion of Robert E. Howard's novel, The Hour of the Dragon. And the very next episode after that will be part one of our discussion of The Hobbit, or There and Back Again, by J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien is an author that has been discussed and commented upon many times over, and he's also my personal favorite author, so I really wanted to do something a little special and different. The Hobbit will be broken up into three episodes, and each portion of the novel will be paired with another short story, or in one case, an essay, by J.R.R. Tolkien. My hope is that these pairings make our discussions a little more interesting and expose some readers to some stories they may not otherwise have read. The first part will be chapters 1 through 6, paired with the short story Rover Random. The second part will be chapters 7 through 11, paired with the essay on fairy stories, 
and the third part will be chapters 12 through 19, paired with the short story Farmer Giles of Ham. Rover Random on Fairy Stories and Farmer Giles of Ham can all be found in a very excellent hardcover collection called Tales of the Perilous Realm, which I think any Tolkien fan should own. They have also been published in various other collections, so check Amazon.com or your favorite local bookstore to see how you can obtain them. And if you do shop at Amazon.com, please be sure to use the Tome Show's Amazon.com link on their webpage. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 27 at the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft. Thanks for listening.